Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, Eric, we've talked about this recently, in fact, actually. I've made no secret of the fact that when it comes to the Rocky films, I've, of course, seen the original several times. Uh, I've seen Creed. Uh, I think I once saw two. In fact, I'm, I'm reasonably certain that I did once. But three through six, nope. And, um, you know, look, burn me at the stake as a heretic, if you will. I've never really had any great interest in doing so. But, so here's why I'm bringing this up. So I saw recently that Sylvester Stallone is working on a director's cut before, which I thought was mildly interesting. But what caught my eye was that he let slip on social media that he is excising the scene involving Paulie's robot. Now... As somebody who has never seen four, my immediate response was, Polly has a robot? <laughs> like, is this movie even worse than I assumed it was? <laughs> How have you never told me about this? Am I now right in feeling even better that I have never watched this movie? Or should I be distressed that this scene apparently is going to be consigned to the trash can of history? <laughs> what the hell's going on here? Yeah, uh, I'm not sure how to explain the fact that I've never told you about it. I guess it, <laughs> it just never quite came up. Um, but uh, it's funny, there's been some backlash to Stallone wanting to cut out the robot. But if I'm being honest, it's not a bad 35 years later directorial choice. Uh, the robot, <laughs> you know, good for a cheesy chuckle or two, but it can probably be cut without the movie losing a beat, especially if Sly replaces those three minutes or so of robot screen time with a new three-minute training montage. Uh, or, or or more, you know, I'm maybe recut Rocky Four as like, 15 total minutes of, of non-training and an hour and 20 minute training montage set to awesome pump you up 80s music. Right. That, that might be the way to go. As, as I've noted before, Rocky Four is the quote unquote bad Rocky movie where the corniness works more often than it doesn't, at least for me. But I'm kind of ambivalent about the robot. Uh, yeah, take it or leave it. Um, but now here's a thought, and I mentioned this to you offline, but now I'm putting it out in the wider podcast universe. I hope that we don't have another three-month gap in the near future without fights because of a pandemic. But if, hypothetically, such a thing should happen, or or for whatever reason there's a dead month on the boxing calendar, we clearly need to have you watch a Rocky movie a week, and we can get your immediate reactions on the pod. You know, we, we did the Monzone series binge. I think middle-aged boxing journalist who has never seen most of the Rocky movies binges the Rocky movies. That's ratings gold, Karen. I, I I like that. I, I'm always thinking we should, you know, have you seen any of these like uh, reaction videos where like some 18 year old is listening for the first yes. time to Bohemian Rap? We almost need to do that. Right. <laughs> Actually film your reactions. Uh, well, I don't want, I was going to say as this or that, but I don't want to provide any spoilers. Let's, okay. uh, yeah. You know, you, although I can't imagine, other than Polly's robot, I can't imagine there's too much that you haven't heard at least a whisper about. But yeah. I'll, I'll try to keep yeah. my mouth shut just to be yeah. safe. No, no, I, I, I like, okay, maybe, maybe not like live 95 minute reaction <laughs> shots of me, but yes, no, I like that. I definitely okay. think we should, uh, we should. Shove that idea to, onto the desks of the relevant authorities. Yes, I think so. Yes, uh, or just do it before they can tell us not to. <laughs> right. um, also, a, a, one, a fine way to approach it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're not deconstructing Rocky anymore uh, on the rest of this week's episode, but we do have quite the show for you, chaps. Anyway, uh, plenty of news to break down. Um, most notably, of course, the 
ever-evolving situation at DAZN, including but not limited to the three-way standoff with uh, Canelo and Golden Boy. Uh, some recently announced fights of note to touch on, particularly the now-confirmed clash between Vasily Lomachenko and Teofimo Lopez. And we have a terrific interview uh, with our regular guest, Stephen Breadman-Edwards. You are definitely not going to want to miss that. But first... This Saturday, Showtime Boxing Special Edition returns with a triple header from Mohegan's son. Uh, in the opener, undefeated welterweight prospect Jaron Boots Ennis meets Dominican veteran Juan Carlos Abreu. In the co-main, featherweight Tugstock Mayambayar meets Kobia Breedy. But let's talk first of all about the main event. Uh, junior middleweight action between recent podcast guests uh, Ericsson the Hammer Lubin and his opponent Terrell Gachet. Uh, Eric, there's no title on the line here. But it kind of feels as if Gachet is the challenger. I mean, I think it's safe to say he's the B-side, mm-hmm. even though, uh, like Lubin, he has just one loss on his record. Um, in fact, amazingly, his record of 21-1-1 is very close indeed to Lubin's 22-1. and um, The two big differences are that Lubin has 16 KOs to Gachet's 10. And whereas Lubin's only 24, Gachet is 33. So, is, particularly given the age difference, is it safe to say, do you think, that Gachet needs this win more than Lubin, and that a loss would basically remove him from serious like title consideration. And what's a pretty crowded junior middleweight division? Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, look, it, it's bad for Lubin if he loses, but it's recoverable in his case because of his age and also because of his style. You know, he's an athletic, exciting puncher. Fans and promoters and network executives will have interest in Lubin if he picks up a second loss. Gachet... Yes, because of his age, he needs to make his move sooner rather than later. But also, he's not an attraction. He's not a yeah. draw. He's just a good, solid, well-schooled fighter. Uh, and he's officially 1-1-1 one, one, and one in his last three fights. And, and he, he just doesn't have the profile to weather that dropping to 1-2-1. and one. He becomes a gatekeeper, a, a B-side, even against other B-side types, if he loses this one. Gachet is a good fighter. His only loss is against Arislandi Lara, nothing wrong with that. Right. And he probably deserved better than a draw against Austin Trout. Yeah. But, you know, he's a good fighter. The world is full of good fighters. He's your classic case of a guy who has no glaring weaknesses, but also has no one mm. thing he does spectacularly, right? Uh, mm. you know, good jab. He goes to the body consistently. Not the fastest guy. Not a lot of power. There just isn't much margin for error with a boxer like Terrell Gachet, especially at age 33. So, yeah, I agree with your premise. He needs this win more than Lubin does. That said, uh, there's also a lot at stake for Lubin. Uh, He has the upside, no doubt. 24 years old, exciting fighting style. And as she's shown in a couple of interviews with us, he's confident and articulate. A very promotable fighter. But... That one loss he has is a hard one to shake. Knocked out in the first round by Jermel Charlo. We all say, and and we know on an intellectual basis, that, that first round knockouts can happen to anybody and they don't necessarily tell us as much or, or damage a guy as much as being beaten up over 12 rounds. Nonetheless, seeing him laid out and struggling to get up while Charlo was dancing around the <laughs> ring, it's a hard image to shake. Uh, four wins in a row since, going for number five, with number five, is this one of those fights, Kieran, where Lubin has to not just win, 
but win impressively. And going beyond attempted win number five in a row, not just win impressively against Gachet, but continue to do so in order to erase that image and get all the way back into the conversation, along with the Charlo Rosario winner, Julian Williams, and all the others at the top of the weight division. Yep, I guess it kind of depends on, you know, who he's, he's trying to impress, right? So on, on one level... If he's looking, you know, at just positioning himself for a title tilt, especially if he's trying to get, say, a, a mandatory from one of the alphabet tapeworms. See the little throwback to last week? There, <laughs> well done. Yep. yep. Uh, right. It's it's just as important. It's more important to go five and zero oh, and then six and zero oh in a row in relatively dull fashion than to go four and one um, with four great performances and and then a, another KO loss. Right. But but it's about more than that. And you sort of alluded to this already. That top. 10 of that junior middleweight division is packed. We've got Jamel Charlo and Jason Rosario probably at the top, and of course we're going to see them against each other soon. There's Julian Williams and Jarrett Hurd if he stays in the division. Lara, you mentioned. Brian Castagna, Tony Harrison. It's a tough division. And it's a division that is populated with exciting fighters and also guys like Lara who lately can be exciting against mm-hmm. the right guy, but as they showed us again recently, can also stink it out if they can get away with it. Um, so like Lubin's at an advantage and a disadvantage in that you know, since he got knocked out by Charlo, he's missed out on the fact that, you know, a lot of these guys have been facing off against each other. That's a disadvantage because he's missing out. But it's an advantage because it means they're knocking each other off. And sort of by default, he's creeping back up the rankings there. You know, look, we haven't heard from Jarrett Hurd really since J-Rock beat him. We haven't heard from J-Rock since Rosario beat him. Um, the only one so far who's lost and seemingly not fallen back a step is Charlo, who lost to Harrison, wasn't very clear-cut, and who avenged it right. rapidly. So, so yeah, look, in terms of rankings and sanctioning bodies, just keep winning. And I, and I don't think he has to worry too much about broadcasters. You talked about this already. You know, it's, this is his second consecutive Showtime main event. And like you said, he's got that exciting style, win or lose, um, and has enough in the bank. And uh, as you also mentioned, as you showed with us on the podcast, he's an engaging personality. So, you know, I, one way or the other, he, he's good there. You know, for fans, though, I was thinking, you know, maybe what he doesn't need is to be knocking out everyone all the time. But maybe he could do with that one signature win, which I don't think he has yet. That one highlight reel KO to lodge itself into fans consciousness and bump that Charlo loss off the top of the YouTube algorithms. (laughs) Right. Right. So that next time when people think about, oh, what's the big what's the big thing of of Ericsson Lubin I have to watch instead of them saying, that uppercut that he got knocked out by, that beautiful right hand that he knocked out Terrell Gaucher with or whoever with or something. So yeah. I almost feel like, you know, that sort of, it's not like he has to consistently be knocking people over, but he could do with that one highlight reel win. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, in the co-main event, it's featherweight action as Mongolia's Tukstop Nyambayar takes on relatively late replacement Kobe Abridi of Barbados. Uh, I haven't seen a very great deal of footage of Abridi, uh, but Nyambayar has been a fairly regular presence on US TV. So even though his pro record is a relatively modest 11-1, and one, we've seen quite a bit of him because he had that a great amateur background and he sort of came ready-made with a lot of hype. Um, in a division that features the likes of Gary Russell Jr., who we saw him drop a decision to last time out, and Shakur Stevenson and Josh Warrington, among others, where do you rank Nayan Bayar? And is there anything you can tell us about his opponent, the undefeated Breedy? The chilling new original docuseries on Paramount Plus. 
Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean in a woman named Sylvie. To the can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and fifteen thousand dollars a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control all desire. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Well, I was ringside in Allentown, Pennsylvania, you'll recall, for King Tug versus Mr. Gary Russell Jr. Mr. Gary Russell. Uh, you'll remember I came home with stories about ass cracks. Uh, that was the that was the last live <laughs> fight right. card I attended before the <laughs> pandemic hit. Uh, maybe someday I'll attend a fight again. Uh, anyway, coming out of that fight, I remember you asked me who I'd like to see in Nyambayar fight next, and I said anyone else in the top 10 right. he, he's a good fighter who just couldn't keep up with gary russell's speed but you know still managed to keep it somewhat competitive and, and win three rounds or so but he was never a threat to win it was a bad style matchup for him so you put him against almost anyone else and i think he'd have a shot to me he's currently a back half of the top 10 featherweight a uh, guy still with a lot to prove a guy with a fun style and that brings me to kobe abridi who also seems to have a fun style. Yeah. He's aggressive. He's a short pressure fighter. And for anyone who hasn't seen him yet, prepare when you first get a look at this guy to ask the question aloud, damn, who shrunk Tim Bradley? Yes. Uh, <laughs> he, you know, Breedy has the shaved head, the thin mustache. He's short. He's ripped. Um, and by the way, not unlike Tim Bradley, that head can be a weapon. Uh, yep. He looks like a tough out. And uh, Breedy, as you mentioned last week, he's trained by Barry Hunter. There's every reason to take him seriously, but he's totally untested. King Tug is a huge leap in opposition for him. If he's up to the challenge, this has the potential to be a really grueling, high-impact fight. I like the style matchup if Breedy can compete on Nyan Bayar's level. Mm. All right, turning our attention to the opener, welterweight action, former Showtime Boxing Podcast guest Jerron Boots Ennis of Philadelphia, 25-0, 23 KOs, faces off against Dominican veteran Juan Carlos Abreu, 23-5-1, 21 KOs, one no contest. In 25 fights, Ennis has never been past six rounds and has only gone the full six once. He's on a 15-fight stoppage streak. He's clearly the favorite in this bout, Mm -hmm. but... While his fans uh, and and washed old farts like us hoping for an early night uh, (laughs) most likely will want to see another KO, is he better served at this stage of his career getting some rounds against a tough veteran and experiencing a 10-round distance fight for the first time? Boy, it's an interesting question, isn't it? It's that dilemma that that there comes a point where it really sort of affects the handlers of so many promising young fighters, especially those who are knocking their opponents out early. It's, 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 this is where good matchmakers earn their coin, isn't it? Because you really want to get them tested. You make to make sure they know what it's like later in, in, in their career. You want to get them pushed and taken rounds without getting them knocked off so that when later in their career, they are taken into deep water. And at some point, everybody is taken into deep water and has to dig deep and gut their way out of a situation. You want it to be, you want that situation to come up when they're in the championship fights and you want them to have had enough experience of it to have some kind of mental and physical preparation for it. You know, when you've got a guy with the, with the skills and talent of, of, of Boots Ennis, um, yet he is still regarded as a, I think it's fair to say, a prospect fringe contender rather than a legit straight up contender even after 25 fights 
that's probably a sign that he hasn't been stretched enough yet, that he, he just hasn't been challenged, that he hasn't faced enough good opposition. And and I think that is the case with Ennis. You know, you look at his record and, and level of opposition, and it's not great, but mm. the eye test watching Geron Ennis tells you he's a very, very good fighter. But he is. He's now at the stage where he needs to be facing guys who are going to challenge and give him rounds. And and that's where you want a guy like Abreu to, to come on in. If you have guys who, who who do go the distance, who don't get stopped, Abreu's never been stopped, and he starts knocking them down too and knocking them out, then you really know you've got something special and there's not much you can do in terms of giving him that kind of challenge. Right. But the ideal scenario is that that's what happens. And it's funny, I was thinking about this and, and I, was, I had to find myself comparing Ennis's situation to Ryan Garcia's, mm. right? You know, both very talented fighters. Yet you've got Ennis probably still several fights away from being a real contender because of his sort of level of opposition and so forth. Garcia on the back of two, you know, first-round KOs, is now going to fight Luke Campbell, it seems. And that's obviously a huge step and, and a great opportunity. But you almost wonder if, as good as I think Garcia is, man, you know, on the basis of just two first-round knockouts in the last year or so, he hasn't been past two rounds in a couple of years. Could he actually have done with some more seasoning and somebody giving him a tough fight before he goes in against Luke Campbell? Is he going to regret that? Um, and, and that's sort of where I think... Ennis's people probably want, you know, him to be, to have the experience of being taken 10 rounds, something like that. So I guess the Goldilocks position for Ennis <laughs> is to be taken relatively deep, right. say into round seven or eight, but still be the first person to stop a Bray who so that people sit up and, and really take notice. But there's also no wrong way to win it, right? Outside of, you know, a DQ or an accidental foul. If he goes 10 he gets that experience. If he scores an early stoppage, wow, people are certainly going to pay attention and he gets a bigger fight next time. Um, basically, what we, as we were saying with Lubin, win first. But whereas, you know, Lubin probably is more looking for that, that um, uh, uh, spectacular win, if at all possible. Yeah, you almost wonder if in the long term, just going those few rounds would be a benefit for, for Jerron Ennis. Yeah, I mean, hindsight is, is always twenty twenty on these sort of things, but the classic historical example of that gone wrong is Jerry Cooney, that just, you know, he right. had those couple of one-round KO blowouts and didn't quite get the experience he needed yeah. heading into a fight with Larry Holmes, and maybe he's not going to beat Larry Holmes no matter how he's prepared for that fight, but in retrospect, everyone looks back and said, boy, he really could have used a couple of tough fights to go some rounds, and he might have had a chance there, and so I think that that applies to Garcia and, and Boots Ennis, that guys like that, before they step all the way up, you want them to have gotten the rounds and experience that they need to, to really be as ready for that as they can possibly be. Yeah, exactly. Um, so shortly, we will make our picks for our prediction contest. But before we do that, let's get the opinions of this week's guest. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, it is a regular guest and a good friend of the podcast. It is time for us to make some bread with Breadman. Stephen Breadman Edwards, thanks as always for joining us, brother. Hey, how you guys doing? Good, good. And you already sound... A lot better than you did the last time we chatted to you. Um, look, the last time we had you on, it was the day after a Showtime box, Championship boxing card. Uh, your fighter, Stephen Fulton, had to withdraw from his scheduled main event after testing positive for COVID. And, and he did an interview on the broadcast where he appeared to be really lively and full of energy despite that. 
The next day, though, you interviewed with us. You didn't seem quite so lively and full of energy. And we kind of wondered, Eric and I, uh, about about you and whether, in fact, you'd also tested positive. Um, I know you didn't want to say anything about it at the time. You wanted to give it plenty of time, but it's a month or so later. I think you're quite happy to talk about what you've been through now. Can you tell us? I'm guessing you did test positive. You did have the virus. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened to you? Should you ever set foot outside of the motel, you will be shot. Don't miss the new Showtime limited series based on the international bestseller. For the last four years, I've been a prisoner. Why are they keeping you here? Starring Emmy Award winner Ewan McGregor. This is the brave new world that you dreamt of. Be very careful. You are still a prisoner here. Everything in this new world comes at cost. This is still my country. A Gentleman in Moscow, now streaming on Paramount Plus, only with the Paramount Plus with Showtime plan. Yes, um, that Tuesday, I uh, I took another uh, COVID test, and um, I wound up testing positive. And uh, the symptoms started coming down maybe that Wednesday night. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, Stephen, uh, he's, he's young enough to be my son. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, you know it, it maybe just didn't affect his system like that. But uh, by Saturday, when you guys called me, um, it was really bad. I think you called me Saturday or Sunday. Yeah. And it just really started uh, attacking my system. And, um, you know, it, I didn't want to talk about it because I knew that I wasn't through the storm yet. It mm-hmm. kind of, like, takes you up and down. Um, there's a lot of insomnia. You can't sleep. Um, the sweat is bad. You can't, um, you can't eat because you lose your sense of taste and smell. So, you know, people may tell you just to eat and, you know, just to try to stay strong, but it's very hard to eat when you can't smell or taste anything. Right. Uh, I can't really explain it, but it does something to your nervous system. And um, it's just a grueling thing when you have strong symptoms. I, I've never experienced anything like that before. Um, and uh, it was tough on me, you know, uh, mentally and physically. I had to really, really like bear down you know at at the lowest point you know i didn't know that i was gonna make it it's it's that bad you know um it it tortures your body it tortures you mentally you know i didn't have breathing issues you know thank god but um i had a terrible headache you know um the sweats were really bad and it it creates like a lot of anxiety it does something to your nervous system Mm. you know it, it created a lot of anxiety with me you know i'm not a person that likes to get a lot of sympathy so i just didn't really you know, want to talk about it because I didn't know whether I was out of the water or not, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, I wound up, uh, I didn't fully feel myself until maybe about two weeks ago. So if you guys call me August 1st or August 2nd, um, although I tested, um, negative, I believe I tested negative, maybe August the 10th. Um, but I didn't feel myself until maybe about two weeks after the negative test. Wow. Interesting. Is there anything yeah. at all still lingering a few weeks later, or do you feel 100% normal at this point? Well, you know what? That's a good question. Um, I'm not, you know, an athlete anymore, so I don't exert myself to a point where I'm trying to run like a five-minute mile, you know? Mm. So, you know, I, I've been able to move around with my kids and, you know, move around with the fighters and uh, shoot jump shots and things like that. So I haven't noticed anything once I feel um, – felt completely back to normal. Um, but I haven't exerted myself to the point where I was exhausted. So that, that will kind of be hard for me to say. Um, I lost 15 pounds. 
So, you know, I've been like doing strength exercises to try. I'm already a thin guy. So I went from 198 to 183. So I gained about eight, eight of those pounds back. So um, I, I, I probably lost a little bit of muscle mass. So I've been trying to do some exercises to feel better. So I would say that that's been a little bit lingering. But as far as how I feel and my energy and things like that, I feel good with that. You know, I've been taking mm-hmm. a lot of zinc. You know, that helps mm-hmm. it. You know, that helps the uh, virus from spreading. So I feel pretty good with that. And, um, you know, I have the antibodies in my system now, which right. will allow me, if I come in contact with it, to allow me to be able to fight it. So, you know, mm-hmm. we'll see. Did you find that it was like over the course of, a, of an average day even that it would come and go or was it like a day to day kind of thing? Is it just, you know, you mentioned how you'd have peaks and troughs, you know, I'm kind of curious as to what that kind of like timeline was like. You know, that's an interesting question. I, I, I'll take you through like the timeline. Uh, I tested cool. positive and I noticed I had like a little cough, but it wasn't like, you know, I felt like the flu or cold was coming on. And then maybe Wednesday night, I noticed that I started getting like a little burning in my nose and I lost my sense of taste and smell. Mm. By Thursday morning, it was kind of like full on. But then I would notice like it would kind of like stabilize and, you know, like it was I could cope with it. You know what I mean? Where I was mm-hmm. like, OK, I can cope with this. You know, I'll be able to get it. And then it like took you for another dive where you just like, Mm -hmm. like, like a roller coaster almost where you think that that's the big drop, but that's not the big drop. That's the big drop little brother. And then you go to the big drop on the roller coaster. So that's the best way I can kind of describe it. You know, that's the part that I think I see why, like, you know, maybe older people may pass away from it because once you get older, you kind of like lose your will to keep fighting. Like you're like, I'm Mm -hmm. 90. I've seen everything in my life. And then you're dealing with this and then it just keeps, you know, it keeps taking you for a ride. It's almost like it's teasing you like, no, we're not done yet, buddy. You know, you got another mile to go with this. So um, every day through it, I didn't feel great or anything like that. But some days were better than 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 others. And then it would just take you down a little bit lower. And um, I think that I uh, was able to get through it. I felt like that I was able to get through it more when, when, when I started being able to eat a little bit better, yeah. you know, cause I, I, I'm, I got a big appetite. And once I started being able to eat a little more, I'm like, you know what? Okay. I'm going to make it through because I remember the day that I tested negative was the first time that I drove my car in over two weeks. And I had to drive about 45 minutes to go to the testing site. And I was weak. Like mm. I was totally like my legs from just putting my foot on the gas pedal and the brake. It was like, it was like weak. And I, and I like went home and I was completely like exhausted just from just driving. Literally, that's all I did was drive. And I was like, wow, you know, it's going to take me some time to get myself together. And about two weeks after that, I felt like, okay, I'm back to normal now. It's horrible, man. It really is. It's horrible. I can't, I can't even describe it. You know, like going to my kids sporting events is probably the biggest deal in my life. And my kids ran in the AAU Junior Olympics uh, August the 4th through August 8th, and I couldn't even go, and it just killed me not to go. I was just like, oh, man, I can't believe I can't. I'm missing their track meet. Right. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's tough, man. I, it, that's all I can say is just like it's, it's one of the worst things of my life, and I can't think of a time where I felt that bad before. Right. Wow. 
Well, well, more than ever, we appreciate that you came on the podcast that, that, that Sunday with us. Seriously, uh, yeah, with, yeah. with us. So yeah. uh, you know, uh, you even even if you couldn't totally uh, cover up how you were feeling, uh, n- knowing what we know now, you certainly could have said, "Hey, guys, sorry, not feeling well, can't do it," and uh, and you didn't. So uh, we appreciate yeah. that. Seriously, yep. no problem, man. No problem. Uh, and of course, we're we're thrilled to hear that you're you know pretty much back to yourself. Uh, and yep. uh, I, I, yep. I guess that I guess that means you're back uh, back into your rhythm. Uh, at the gym with training what what can you tell us yeah. what can you tell us about the status uh, of your gym and your and your training and and what the plans are as far as you know for for Fulton for J-Rock and, and I, any uh, of the others well I'm, I'm not Stephen Fulton's um head trainer what happened with Stephen Fulton was he trains in the gym with us I've been knowing him for a long time mm-hmm. and um and um you know his trainer had got and tested positive and um you know he knows me and we're really cool and uh i was he was using a, a 122 pound kid that i have named romeo cruz who fights at um fights at the same weight he, he hired mm. him for camp for sparring so um he was like you know we need somebody experienced in the corner you know would you mind helping me helping us out and of course gotcha. i would you know uh i got a lot of love for Stephen fall he's a great kid so that's how that came about, you know. But uh, his trainer's name is uh, Hamza Muhammad. He does a great job with him. Okay. And um, my other guys, I just, um, you know, I train everybody one person at a time. You know, I wear the glass shield. And, uh, you know, I uh, go to the gym where it's just, um, you know, just me and him. You know, we kind of like run out our own space, you know. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I have uh, three guys. I got uh, Karan Davis. Romeo Cruz and Zachary Ochoa, um, and that's just that. You know, uh, I, I won't be training uh, Julian Williams anymore, mm. but with our guys, you know, we just do, um, you know, we just try to just social distance as much as you can, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's the best thing you can do. Mm. Okay. I'm sorry to hear that about, about J-Rock. Is is that, yeah. like, just, just in the last days or weeks so that this is this is not um, news that's you know out what? there, is it? It's uh, It's been... You know, I just had to remove myself from the situation. It's been, I've been feeling this way for a while, okay. you know, but, you know, I get, because he hasn't fought in a while, you know, every, obviously people anticipate his, his, his comeback. So I've kind of been asked this, the question constantly. So, you know, I may as well just kind of just let you guys know, like, you know, I, I just, you know, um, we had a great ride, you know, it was 10 years. You know, but in boxing, a trainer and a um, fighter relationship, if it lasts 10 years, that's really a long time. It's a decade, (laughs) you know, and people usually don't have that. And, um, you know, it's hard to endure two losses. You know, um, you know, usually, unfortunately, that when the trainer, you know, when when a fighter loses a fight, especially by knockout, you know, usually the trainer, you know, they kind of separate. And, um, you know, we just couldn't get past this last loss, you know, um, you know, I wish we could have, you know, I got a lot of love for the kid, but, you know, um, the situation just wasn't any good for me anymore. And I just decided, you know, uh, that it just wasn't good for me anymore. You know, um, now streaming on Paramount Plus. You ready, Bob? Well, all right. Audiences are raving. Bob Marley is electrifying. It's the feel-good movie of the year. You dig? Bob Marley, One Love. Rated PG-13. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Uh, I don't have any regrets, you know, um, I, I thought that I did a great job, you know, with him, 
And um, when it was just me and him, we were fine, you know, but sometimes, you know, we were undefeated. I remember Showtime did a stat on us where we had won like 50 straight rounds for like three, three years. But, you know, with status, with money and things like that, more people come into your circle. And, um, you know, I just think that uh, you just you, you feeding off of other people's energies and, you know, and it takes the focus away from the special bond that me and Julian had. And it kind of just, um, you know, it destroyed our relationship, you know, as far as boxing. But, um you know, he didn't gain the enemy out of me because he lost me and lost me as a, a friend or trainer. You know, I just got to just get away from the situation. It's just no good for me anymore. You know, and I just rather, you know, not be part of it. You gotcha. know, some people might call me stupid or crazy for walking, you know, mm. not wanting to be part of a situation where a fighters making so much money, you know, because trainers don't make six figures in one night. But right. as a man, you know, you're a man before you're a trainer. And if you got certain principles and things like that, you know, um, to bring a fighter back from a from a bad knockout loss, you got to be able to tell him the truth. Yeah. You know, I, I, I that's how you know I was able to tell him the truth with Charlo, and we came back. But you know, things have just changed. The dynamics of our relationships have, has changed, and it's just not good for me anymore. But I still think Julian's a great fighter, and I still think that when he's a hundred percent right, he could beat anybody. You know, that that performance he put on against Jared Hurt. I've seen him do that 50 times over the last decade in the gym. You know, he just has to find a way to, you know, do that in the, um, in the actual fight against the elite opponents. And um, I still think he could come back and be um, champion. It's just, um, I'm not going to be part of it. Gotcha. Man, okay. how many times you hear that story in boxing? It's just, oh, man, it's sold it's as a sport, isn't it? You know, I thought, um, you know, I thought we would be able to endure it. You know, I wanted to go to the Hall of Fame with the kid. But, you know, guys, it's just, as a man, man, you just can't allow certain things to happen, you know. And um, like I said, me and Julian were fine, man, for for a long time. Nobody wanted to be around us, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like it was no, it, we didn't have anybody else that we had to cater to anything because it was just us. Nobody wanted to be around us. It, we we had plenty of flight tickets because it was just me and him, you know, <laughs> on the long, dark. Uh, Role, you know what I mean? And then, you know, as things, as you progress, as your status uplifts, things change, you know? And, you know, now we're having to um, kind of uh, compromise our relationship for, 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 for the people around us, you know? And, you know, I can't deal with that, man. You know, um, yeah. we, we had a special bond, but my bond was with Julian, you know? And, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to get into specifics, but it's just, it's, it's just, when, when things aren't fun for you anymore and you gotta, you gotta cater to other people's needs and things like that, you know, that's, that's, that's not, that's not the way we, we, we built, we built what we built. We built it from working our asses off, outworking everybody, you know, nobody wanting to deal with them, no promoters wanting to deal with them, nobody thinking he had an upside and things like that. And I can't allow people to affect our relationship and what we built and benefit off of is when they didn't help us build it or they had minimum role in helping us build it. Because the the truth is it was me and Julian along on that dark road, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and I have to be able to have a certain say in order to fix the problem that we got. And, you know, and there was some things that happened in, you know, leading up to the Rosario fight and after the Rosario fight. And if you want me to be a head trainer, you got to allow me to fix the problem. And part of it is telling you the truth. Right. You know, I'm I, I'm a truth teller. You know, I tell my kids the truth. I've told every fighter the truth that I ever worked with. 
And, you know, um, I always told Julian the truth. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, 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 it seems like I can't anymore. So I, I got to remove myself from the situation. Right. Right. Um, so we asked you this last time, uh, but, you know, you probably don't quite remember but um it's worth revisiting now that you're you know in in better health and i don't know if while you've you know recovered while you've had a chance to go back and look at the fight that uh steph fulton was supposed to be in um Mm -hmm. where angelo leo ended up facing tremaine williams and after a couple of rounds he ended up you know clearly beating him i don't know if you've had a chance to you know with a clear head watch it and and if so what you thought of it and how you feel you guys would have done against that Angelo Leo that night. Um, you know what? I'm gonna tell you something, man. I um I was watching Angelo Leo because um I had a fighter, like I said, my fighter Romeo Cruz was 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 a uh, we call Stephen Fulton Scooter. It was Scooter's chief sparring partner for this fight. Okay. And so I watched Angelo Leo, you know, to see little style similarities, and I was trying to help him out as much as I could. But Angel Leo actually raised his game up mm. for that championship fight. You know, um, I'm very confident that Stephen Fulton would have beat him, but um, he wasn't a pushover. He didn't lay down. He fought with a lot of determination and a lot of will, and he really wanted to win that fight. Yeah. And, um, you know, um, I think it would have been a great fight. But Stephen Fulton is one of those kids, you know, he does what he has to do to win. You know, I think he would have raised his game. I think he's a little bit better natural athlete. I think he's a little bit more physically gifted. And he's a dog. You know, he hasn't had to show it a lot, but he's a dog. And his conditioning is excellent. I think he would have won the fight. But I'm actually, this is kind of weird, but I'm actually glad that he got to see Angelo Leo at perform the way he did against uh, Tremaine Williams. So, like, it won't kind of be a shock to him because the guy that you're watching on video, he was better than that guy. Hmm. You know, he raised right. his game up. So now I think Scooter is, you know, his sense of awareness and understanding that, you know, I got to be on my game. I got to bring my A game. I got to be really, really sharp to beat this guy. I think that he's going to actually perform better now because um, going by the videos that I watch, I'm like, wow, this is a different guy. He, he you know, after a slow couple of rounds, he turned into an animal. So um, I'm actually – God does everything for a reason, man, and I'm actually glad that that kid um, got to see that, you know. And I'm not saying he's underestimating him by any means, but sometimes when you watch a guy on video, you know, you can't help what you see. And um, now he's like, whoa, you know, I got a fight on my hand, you know. So um, I think that's good, you know, because fighters – my experience with fighters that they need to know that if they're not right, they could lose. Right. You know, they need to know that you got to train with a little bit of paranoia that the other guy can do something to you because you'll you'll have a, um, you'll have a bad night. You got to go in a fight with like a like like sometimes you can get a lackadaisical. Sometimes you can get dismissive. Sometimes you can look at a guy and not see much in him and you'll still train. But you won't train knowing that this guy can, you know, knock you out or, or put you in a hospital if you're not right. You know. And, and, and um, I'm glad, I'm glad Scooter got to see that. You know, I actually told his head coach that, you know, I'm like, yo, this is, this, he got a fight on his hand. It's not going to be easy, you know, and um, fighters need to train a little bit scared. Scared, fear is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. You know, people, that's, it's just how you channel it. You need to be a little bit of a, afraid when you go into a fight. You know, um, from my experience with training Julian, 
when he was a, a little bit afraid and a little nervous, he fought like a savage, mm. you know, but sometimes if he get a little complacent, he doesn't perform insane. So that's a good thing in my opinion, man. So yeah. um, I'm glad Scooter got to see that. Interesting. Interesting. Well, staying in that same 122-pound division, looking ahead uh, to some upcoming Showtime fights, the September 26th doubleheader pay-per-view actually has three undercard fights in that 122-pound weight class. It's Luis Neri against Aaron Alameda, Brandon Figueroa against Damian Vasquez, and Daniel Roman against Juan Carlos Payano. What interests you most there, and, and who do you see as, as most likely to emerge with some momentum after that night out of, out of those six guys? Um, that's a good question. Um, Neri is a guy that's hard to, to judge. You know, he seems like the uh, most um, uh, highly rated out of the three, but, I mean, you know, he's had some issues. You know, I don't know if you guys – I don't know if I should say it, but he's had some obvious issues. So you don't know what you're going to get with him. You know, um, he's moved from 112 to 122. Right. He's had some issues before. So I just, I, he, he looks like a tremendous fighter, but you got to wonder what's going on with a guy that has these, mm-hmm. you know, positive tests and he's keep gaining all this weight. So it's hard to tell. I would suspect that he's going to be, you know, the best fighter out of the six. But it's just, you know, it, it, it's too many variables to be able to tell with him. Right. I think Payano's a good fighter, but I think he's getting a little older now. And um, Dane Roman is a good fighter also, you know. Um, but um, I, I, w- I would say Luis Neri is the, um, is the, you know, the best guy of the bunch. And if everything is on the up and up with him, you know, he should, um, he should emerge as the, uh, the better fighter out of the six that you named. Okay. Mm-hmm. And obviously the big attractions for that are the, the two main events, Jamal Charlo against Sergei Derevyanchenko, Jamel Charlo against the man we just talked about, you know, very well, Jason Rosario. I, um, I just, I just went to go bet on Jamal Charlo. Oh I just left the casinos. Yeah. yeah what, what? I just left the casinos. I bet on, I bet, I just went to, literally right before you guys called me. That's what I went to go bet on. Man. So what, what, what price did you end up getting? I got Jamal Charlo at uh, minus one sixty-seven. Okay, and I remember when you the when you were on last time, you talked about possibly a, a Charlo parlay or a or a charlay. As a, yeah, you know what? I'm, <laughs> honestly, I'm a little, I'm more confident in the bigger Charlo and the matchups. Okay, because um, I think I think Darren Chinko is an excellent fighter, you know, but I think he's too small. The bigger Charlo mm. has one of those hard, heavy bag like George Foreman jabs where he keeps hitting you with it. He slows the guy down, and people don't understand that when you keep getting hit with a jab and your neck keeps snapping back, what it does is it screws up your spinal cord. And if your spinal cord is messed up, your whole body doesn't work. So he's not like a great body puncher. He doesn't have a big volume, but he's always hitting you with that hard jab. And during Chenko, he looks to me to be about like five seven. He looks short to me. Mm, right. You know, fighters lie about their height. Everybody puts an inch or two on their height. That's just the way it is. You know, he looks a little just too small to get to Charlo. Charlo is a guy that can compete at 168 pounds comfortably. He's a big. He's legitimately six foot to six one. He's a big kid and he's not skinny. Sometimes a guy that's tall for the weight is skinny, but that guy ain't skinny. He got a big head. He got big legs. He's a strong guy. So I just think that um, that Darren Chenko has obviously better amateur pedigree. He um he 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 probably is the better technician. 
But boxing doesn't work that way because you're better than a guy in a certain area, then that means you can beat him. I think that Charlo's jab and just his physical size and physicality will be a lot. And I noticed that Derenchenko kind of has a cold chin. You can get him down early. And I think Charlo has a heavy punch. And I think that his jab and just kind of just posting up in the center of the ring and Derenchenko's lack of height will, I think Charlo can edge it. You know, I don't think he's going to blow him out, you know, um, but I can just see him, his punches having more effect on Derenchenko than Derenchenko's punches having on Charlo. And, um, I, and, and Charlo has a world-class chin. He doesn't get credit for enough for his chin. Um, you, when you hit him, if you notice, he doesn't move off the mark. He's able to eat through a shot and, and, and hold his ground and fire back. And that means, you know, that, that, that means a lot. You know, he has a strong spine, a big head, and he has a good chin. Now, he's not the hardest guy to hit, and he's not like a great boxer where you can't touch him, but he makes up for it with his punch, his strength, and his chin. He's a mean guy, you know. So I'm more comfortable with um, Charlo winning than I am Jamal Charlo winning than I am his brother because um, Jason Rosario is a wild card. I don't mm-hmm know if he's as good as he is that Julian made him look. Julian had issues going into that fight. You know what I mean? Um, you know, physical things that, you know, limit his performance. So I don't know if he's as good as Julian made him look. But he is good. He throws really, really good counter punches. He's um he's he's gonna be confident as hell. He has a really good punch variety. And people don't realize this. They think that Jamel Charlo is a better boxer than him, but he's not. Jamel Charlo, he, he used to move his legs and stuff and move around the ring. But if you really, really look at him, he's not hard to hit. What Jamel Charlo is, he's like his brother. He's a dog. He's a mean guy. He knows how to land the shot that he needs to land. He's strong. He got good stamina and he has good determination. He's a good offensive fighter. But he's not the kind of guy that you really call like a slick boxer. And people give people credit for boxing because they use their legs and stuff like that. But, but Rosario kind of comes forward, but Rosario has slick counters. He can, um, he can rock back. He can slide over. Um, he knows how to fake to the body and, and, and go to the head and, and vice versa. He can, um, he, can sh- he can throw pull counter shots. He can counter over your jab. He can counter up under it. Rosario doesn't use his legs as much as Charlo, but he's actually a better boxer. You know, the advantage that I give Jamel is I think that Rosario slows down in the second half of the fight. And I think that Jamel has a clutch gene. He knows how to land his money shot when he has to land it. So I, while I favor Jamel slightly in the fight, I don't feel as comfortable betting on Jamel at four to one as I do his brother, who's minus 167. I don't believe that Jamel should be that big of a favor over, um, over Rosario. I think that that's too much. Those odds are a little wide because yeah. Jamel – He's a good fighter. He's beating everybody he's ever had to face. And, um, you know, he got his revenge against Tony Harrison. But if you look at his record really good, he's not dominant against his better opponents. Like, he, he really isn't. You know, he, he struggles to a lot of hard decisions or he has to, like, score, like, a big knockout late. But he's not a guy that wins 10 or 11 rounds in 12-round fights. If you look, he had a tough time with Vannis. If you look, he had a tough time with um, Austin Trout. You know, if you look, he had a tough time with Tony Harrison. If you look, he lost like seven rounds in a row to John Jackson. So Jamel, to me, I think Jamel is approaching a Hall of Fame career as a junior middleweight. He's doing really well at the weight because he's been winning all his fights. But the fashion that he's winning by, 
he's not winning by like domination. The the the, the Lubin fight, he caught him with a great punch. That's you know what I mean. That's that's something that happened. But um, if him and Lubin fought twelve rounds, Jamel's not gonna win ten rounds from Lubin. You know what I mean? Is he's he's not that kind of fighter. So I don't expect him to win. You know and dominate Rosario. I think it's gonna be a really really close fight. And uh, if you twisted my arm, I picked Jamel on. Um, he just got a clutch gene. He just knows how to pull out these close fights. He really does. You know, I thought Tony Harrison was winning the second fight. But Jamel, I give him credit. He has a chin. He's determined and he keeps throwing his shots till he gets his man. And I think that he can slow Rosario down a little bit. I think Jamel's got a little bit more natural stamina where I think Rosario might run out of gas a little bit, you know, come the middle of the fight from when I'm watching him. But that's a close, tough fight, and I think those odds are way off. I, right. I don't think Jamel should be four to one against that kid. Okay. Um, all right. Well, b- before all that stuff on the on the big pay per view, we get a Showtime Boxing Special Edition this Saturday. Uh, a triple header that kicks off with uh, Jerron Boots Ennis against Juan Carlos Abreu. Uh, before I get your opinion at all on Ennis, uh, he, he's a Philly guy. I'm just curious. Have Have you ever worked with him? Had guys spar with him? Anything like yep. that? Yep. I've okay. had Julian Williams and Karan Davis farm. I've been uh, I've actually had him in my camps okay. since he was like seventeen years old. Wow. Okay. So so how high are you on Ennis uh, as a fighter, and and what do you want to see from him uh, in this fight against Abreu? I want to see Ennis get hit with mm-hmm. um, eight ounce gloves on and no headgear. But if he has a chin that holds up, I think he's going to be the number one pound for pound fighter in boxing. Wow. I think he can win oh. titles at one forty seven. 154 and 160. Um, he reminds me of a mixture of uh, Mark Two Sharp Johnson and Roy Jones. Not saying he's as good as either one, but that's what he reminds me of. He's absolutely phenomenal, and he's a great kid. He's really um, like a humble kid. He doesn't curse. You know, he's uh, always respectful to me, to his father, but he's an absolute killer in the boxing ring. You know, an absolute killer. He's an animal. You guys cannot spar him. If he if they if they're not in peak form, he's 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 unbelievable. He's every bit as good as Shakur Stevenson and Devin Haney and all of those guys. I'm telling you, he's phenomenal. I, I don't expect him to lose a round. Uh I expect him to put on a show. Um and I just I think I think he has the potential. He just hasn't had the media push and things like that of the Teofamo Lopez and Shakur Stevenson and things like that. But um, as far as talent and skill level, he's every bit as good as those guys. He can punch. He's a great body puncher. He's just as good from the left side as he is the right side. I think that he would give Terrence Crawford and Earl Spence hell right now, wow. right this second. I'm talking about I'm, – I'm serious when I say that. He's, he's, he's taller and longer than both of them. He's about – he's between 5'10 and 5'11 with really long arms. His reflexes are unreal. You can't even really hit the kid. I'm, I'm telling you, um, they better leave that boy alone. <laughs> he, wow. I'm telling you, he's not going to get a title shot until he becomes a mandatory for somebody. They better leave that kid alone <laughs> because he's going to embarrass one of these guys. He is phenomenal. Wow. He really is. He's a he's an unbelievable talent. I just want to see him get hit because you know how things could be. Right. I want to see him get – I don't think that this guy can do it. But I would like to see him get hit on his chin, you know, by a decent, you know, fighter that's coming to win every round. And after I see that, then, you know, but this guy right here that he's fighting, 
I just don't know, you know what I mean, what his attitude is going to be because mm. uh, we call Jerron in his boots. Boots is discouraging because he's always touching you and you're not touching him. And that's discouraging because mm. he's not only is he a dynamic offensive fighter, he's a dynamic defensive fighter. He has the ability to mentally process what you're doing at a very, very fast rate. And he has a high work rate. He's always jabbing. He's always going to your body. You know, I don't know how the, um, you know, the, um, the isolation of the pandemic is going to affect them. You know what I mean? That's something that you always have to factor in with the quarantine and how they're making weight and things like that. But if he's right, expect a dominant performance and don't expect him to lose a round and look for him to score late stoppage. He's, he's, he's just, he's, un- he's unbelievable. He's an unbelievable talent. Uh, okay. And I try not to say that about a kid because you just never know. But he's one of the, he's the most talented kid I've ever seen come out of Philly. Wow. Uh, All right. Well, when when our when these podcasts go up, usually the marketing department and the social media folks look for like a, a pull quote to put on like a <laughs> yeah, tweet. You gave the, you gave them like half a dozen different perfect pull quotes to to work with on, on Boots Ennis. There, that was great. Um, so I, the co- I only tell the go truth, ahead. man. I gotta right. tell the truth about a fighter. You know, he's a, he's a phenomenal fighter, man. Yep. Um, so the co-main on that broadcast is featherweights, uh, Tug Nyambayar and Kobia Breedy. Um, we last saw Nyambayar losing to Gary Russell Jr., but there's no shame in that. Um, did you see enough from him in that fight to suggest that he can at least be some kind of factor at featherweight? Yeah, I think he's a good, solid fighter. Gary Russell is an excellent fighter. You know, um, people criticize him because of his inactivity, but that's not, you know, that's different from him, from, from his skill level. Uh, I think he's, I think Tug is a, is a, is an excellent fighter. You know, I don't know if he's like an A plus guy or a guy, mm. you know, or one of the elite elite guys in the division. But he definitely um, is an excellent fighter, and um, I expect him to probably win this fight. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and of course, uh, the main event of, of that card uh, is uh, a big 154-pound battle. Uh, Erickson Lubin, who you already mentioned, he's taken on Terrell Gachet. Uh, Lubin is the favorite, but uh, as you and J-Rock experienced from both sides of the favorite underdog coin, pretty much any of the top junior middles can beat any of the other junior middles on the right night. What does Lubin need to do to avoid what I would consider a, a mild upset against Gachet? Um... You know, this fight is intriguing to me because sometimes when one fighter is more offensively dynamic and they're like more aesthetically pleasing, like Lubin looks to be better than the well-rounded Gaucher. But that doesn't mean that he is better. Like, 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 like for example, Vernon Forrest and Shane Mosley. Shane Mosley looked to be better than Vernon Forrest until they fought each other, you know? Mm. Um, Felix Trinidad and Bernard Hopkins is another case where Trinidad looked to be better than Hopkins until they fought. Sometimes the well-rounded guy doesn't get the um, accolades until they prove that they can beat another guy because of the way things look. Um, That being said, I do favor Lubin. You know, um, I've been watching Garcia for a while. I pay attention to everybody in the 54-pound division. Mm -hmm. But he used to fight at 60. And it seems like that he slowed himself down a little bit um, um, since he's come down in weight. I know he was an amateur at, I believe, 165 and 178. And he's in his 30s now. I don't know. All of these guys are big. You know, everybody's cutting 25 pounds. But I don't know if he um, – I watched him with Austin Trout, and uh, he won that fight pretty clearly. But he, um, he slowed down in the second half of the fight. 
So I don't know if that's because of weight or what, but he could have really like put an exclamation point on the performance where it wouldn't even given anybody an argument to give him a draw. So, um, you know, that's something that I will be concerned about. And I also noticed that sometimes Terrell, um, you know, he has like the Winky Wright syndrome where Winky Wright was a great fighter, but every once in a while he would kind of let you get off too many punches mm. where, where Terrell kind of waits for you to get off and he has like the high defense. And I think Lubin is busy. He has fast hands. Um, he ate those like judge-friendly combinations. I think that uh, Kevin Cunningham is the kind of trainer that's going to make sure that you're in shape. He stands over top of his guys. He's up with them early in the morning. He's timing their runs. You're going to be in shape with Kevin Cunningham. He's not going to not let you be in shape. And um, I think Garcet is going to make a fight of it because Garcet um, – Garcet, was an Olympic was an Olympian and he wasn't the favorite. You know, he beat a kid from Philadelphia named Jesse Hart a couple right. of times to to become and he has a win over Caleb Plant. You know, and the amateurs isn't everything, but it is something that I watch with amateur fighters. Can you come through in the clutch when you need to? And Gaucher proved that he could come through in the clutch. So I expect him to land a sneaky right hand on Lubin and I expect him to make some of these rounds close with his patience. But overall I think Lubin will win a decision. I don't see either guy stopping the other one because Garcia doesn't open up that much. And um, and I think that Lubin, because he was caught by Charlo, is going to be more of a patient fighter where he won't overdo certain things and get himself caught. So I say Lubin will, um, will get a decision. But I think it's going to be competitive because Garcia is patient. And sometimes young fighters, they're kryptonite is patient. Garcia or right. lose a couple of rounds and he won't, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll like, he'll bait you in. And I think that he's going to try to bait Lubin into something. Cause I don't know if he can match his work rate for uh 10 or 12 rounds, however long it is. Right. Gotcha. Brad, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. It's great to talk to the real you again as well. Look, <laughs> seriously, next time you are depleted from a pandemic virus, you can always turn us down, but, um, <laughs> Thank you for always being such a good friend to us and to the podcast. We really appreciate you giving us your insight all the time. And we're really happy you're doing better too, man. Thanks thanks a lot. And, and it's good to have you back. Yep. I appreciate that. Thanks all a right, lot, brother. Stephen. Take always care. good thanks talking so much, to you. Man. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Breadman for that interview. Man, night and day, how talkative he was <laughs> this time versus last time. Uh, great to know he's feeling all right at this point and seems to have COVID behind him. And very sorry to hear he and J-Rock are no more. As yeah. as far as I know, we just broke that news on this podcast. We'd gotten the sense there was trouble there the last couple of times we yep. spoke to Breadman. He was tap dancing around uh, J-Rock. Uh, now it's official. Um, but they had a good 10-year run, as he said. Hey, longer than us uh, at this point, Kieran. We're only at six years of podcasting together. If we make it to 10, I give you permission to ditch me with no hard feelings at that point. Right. Well, duly noted. Okay. <laughs> 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 anyway, it is time for us to make our predictions. As a reminder, we get one point for each winner we pick correctly, and an additional one point if we correctly predict knockout or decision. Then another bonus point if we get the type of decision, unanimous split majority, uh, or three points if we pick a stoppage and nail the exact round. Kieran, thanks to you buying off the Mohegan Sun judges who were scoring the Raleigh Romero-Jackson Mourinho's bout <laughs> on August 15th, you have a two-point lead on the year, 28 points to 26 but a lot of time for me to make up ground hell n nine fights to pick the next two weeks uh including <laughs> right. including three this week uh it's my turn to pick first 
And we'll begin with the opener, Boots Ennis versus Juan Carlos Abreu. Man, I thought I was high on my Philly boy boots. Uh, Breadman showed me what believing in boots really sounds like. Uh, Pound for pound number one, the love child of Roy Jones and Mark Tushar Johnson. Um, But uh, I do believe in uh, Boots Ennis' talent and in his dedication to the sport. He, He seems to have the whole package. And if he does... Even though Abreu has never been stopped, not by Humberto Soto, not by Jamal James, not by Mean Machine Kavalowskis, Ennis should be able to stop him. I'm with Breadman on this, on how good Ennis is. I am expecting plenty of rounds, though. It, it, I don't think this one will be quick and easy. I'll go Ennis KO8. <laughs> okay, well, there won't be any difference in points on this one. <laughs> um, uh, you know, like I said earlier, the, the Goldilocks zone for Boots Ennis is to go some rounds, still score the KO. I do think that will be what happens here. Um, Abreu has been down before, even though he hasn't been stopped. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if Boots like knocks him down relatively early, you know, a sort of drop to the seat of the pants as he's coming in kind of punch. Right. And it might even feel, oh, gosh, are we in for an early night? But I do think Abreu will settle in. Do think you'll frustrate him at times. Do think you'll show him some veteran moves. Um, but at the same time, you know, Ennis will sort of get that distance, will get that jab going, will start getting comfortable, will let the punches fly. And then I think the fact that Abreu's taken this fight on relatively short notice will start to bite as well at some point. Uh, I think by round seven, Boots will be in control. And I think it'll be like a corner or referee stoppage, perhaps with Abreu on his feet in round eight. All right. Back to our boring old agreeing and everything selves. It was fun while I lasted. <laughs> um, I'm having a little bit of a hard time picking Nyambiar Breedy, um, partly because I've seen you know only a, a little bit of Breedy. I've seen I've managed to see footage of about three of his fights now, um, and because as you alluded to, it's very difficult to know you know the fights that he's had have not been at anything like a King Tug kind of level. Um, what I've seen of him suggests he's a very active boxer. He likes to likes to get in close, throws quite a lot of punches. Um, like you said, moves in with his head. He's had at least one fight that I'm aware of stopped early because of an accidental headbutt. Um, you know, doesn't like to give his opponent much of a chance to breathe. Interestingly, also, you made the Tim Bradley comparison. Another Tim Bradley comparison. He looks like he should be knocking people out. But despite the way that he looks, despite the aggressive style, he doesn't seem to have a lot of power. He had, right. I think, four stoppages in his first six bouts and just one in his subsequent nine. Um and the other thing from what I've seen, it looks as if, you know, even though he likes to get in close, it doesn't, and throw punches, it doesn't look like his defense is that great. Um, I think you'll have enough to make Nyambiar have to think for, a, for the first few rounds. There might be some cuts involved here, um, but I kind of just have a feeling, I, f- I feel like I've seen Tug eat this kind of guy up before and i just think he's going to walk into what nyambiar is, is throwing nyambiar has these beautiful short straight punches and i think he's going to start figuring him out i see breedy walking into a punch um and that finishing him off i think tugs drops him and stops him in about round six okay all right well we do have some degree of disagreement here at least I, my pick is not tug ko6 so that's good um i expect it's too big a leap for breedy um, he's had a tough enough time with some non-world-class opponents to make me think he's going to be a little overmatched here. But his style is going to make it a challenge, I think, for Nyambayar, and I fully expect some head clashes. If it's a technical decision, 
that counts as a decision, right? In in like in terms of, I, I believe so for yeah, us. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. Like in terms of, I know how sports books operate. Uh, a DQ is actually the same as a KO for in sports betting, and a technical decision is graded as a decision. So I'd say that should be our approach. I can't recall if we ever discussed it before, but um, I think Breedy might be tough enough to last the distance, or it could end in a technical decision. Mm. So either way, I'll go King Tug by lopsided unanimous decision in what I expect will be a, a fairly physical fight. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm moving on to the main event, Lubin versus Gachet. Breadman is definitely on to something with his talk about how we can overrate the high upside guy and underrate the solid but unspectacular guy. If Lubin is a favorite here, he isn't a huge favorite. Um, I see a fight where Jack and Sledge make their mark early, uh, <laughs> but Gachet takes what they can dish out and then Lubin settles into more of a boxing mode, where he still has the speed advantage, still can win rounds, but Gachet will outmaneuver and outclever him in spots. I don't think Lubin will get Gachet out of there, but I also have a hard time seeing Gachet doing enough eye-catching work to get the decision, especially as the B-side, especially with the weird judging tending to favor the A-side that we've seen mm. in the bubble era so far. Give me Lubin on points, unanimous, Maybe like a 116-112 type of fight that one of the judges scores like 119-109 right. or, or 172-12 right. to 12 or something. like Anything is possible in boxing in 2020. Yep. So if there's going to be any difference, so the difference that there will be mm-hmm. in points will be because of the co-main because okay. <laughs> we, ag- we agree on this one too. Right. Um, yeah. Um, we talked earlier about whether Lubin needs to look consistently spectacular or to score a defining statement when um, this won't be the fight in which he'll, he'll do either. Um, you know, even though Gachet, as we said, isn't the most attractive of boxers at times, he's obviously highly capable. Um, I think the big problem that he has, Gachet, is that he finds a speed and he finds a gear, and that's his gear. Uh, and, and I think the important thing for Lubin is to make sure that he doesn't really get out uh, of that first or second gear, because that's where he'll be for most of the fight. And, and I think that... Um, uh, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago that I think sometimes um, judges almost will favor the guy who's obviously adapting and changing pace and doing different things. And I think that Lubin is more capable of being that guy mm. than Gachet is. He might have to vary it up a little bit to try to get some advantage here and there. Um, but I think he will. Uh, yeah, that, that kind of score sounds about right, like a 16-12, 17-11 kind of fight. It will be very clear at the end of it that Lubin has won. Right. Um, and this is going to be one of those where he'll take the W, and if he's going to look for that highlight real one, it'll probably have to be the next fight. Right. All right. Uh, not too much fight action on which to report uh, from this last weekend, but on Saturday night. On ESPN Plus, uh, welterweight Agajus Mean Machine Kavalowskis came from behind on two scorecards to drop Michael Zuski at the end of round seven and stop him early in the eighth. Um, we last saw Mean Machine in a strong, although ultimately unsuccessful, challenge of Terence Crawford, and afterward he called for a rematch, saying, quote, I don't think Crawford has any other choices at welterweight. I can ask his team, with all due respect, to give me a rematch because these guys have no opponents yet. Uh, there has, of course, been talk of Crawford taking on Kel Brook, and reportedly those negotiations are quite advanced. Eric, based on Saturday night, does Mean Machine deserve a rematch already? And would you rather see that 
or a Kelbrook fight? And that might be a trick question, I understand. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess no no great answers there, but there, there is absolutely no point in a Crawford-Kavalowskis 2. Mean Machine gave it his best shot the first time, was surprisingly competitive, and still got stopped. Uh, against Zuski, I mean, he was really struggling until he hurt Zuski at the end of the seventh round. How does getting busted up against Zuski right. prove you deserve another crack at Crawford? Um, I have no problem with Kavalaskis calling for it. He's a fighter. Good for him. Uh, yeah. But if this doesn't tell you how poor the options for Crawford are right now, I mean, the fact that anyone would consider this rematch for half a second is a really bad sign about the state of affairs for Bud Crawford. I don't love Crawford Brook, but I'll take it for sure over Crawford Kavalowskis too. Uh, two more quick thoughts on the Mean Machine fight Saturday night. Impressive finishing by Kavalowskis. Once mm. he heard him uh, with an uppercut, uh, that's the trend of late, come from behind KOs uh, with, that start with uppercuts. Um, but once he heard him, he took care of business. That was impressive. And the other thing I have to mention, two judges had Zuski ahead by two points. One had Mean Machine ahead by two points. And that one outlier was Steve Weisfeld. Uh, not that either side was right or wrong necessarily here, but I'm getting worried, Kieran. Uh, yeah, if, I want to hear it. If 2020 takes the judging powers <laughs> of Steve Weisfeld from us, along with everything else we've lost, I just don't know if I can handle that. I know. I don't think so either. All right. Uh, lots of news to cover this week, or at least a few news items to cover in some depth. Um, and I think there's really no question about the main one here, the thing that's had the boxing world a buzz this past week. Uh, that's the happenings at DAZN. Uh, so the streaming service has laid off, I believe it's 2% of its global workforce, which doesn't necessarily sound like a lot, but it's focused on two of its locations, as I understand, Brazil and particularly the United States. So the USF office has seen a few layoffs, uh, including in its publicity department and including some of our ex-HBO friends. Uh, and the word being that the company is sort of redirecting his efforts, um, sort of moving away from attempting to buy its way into streaming rights for any of the major team sports in the US, is focusing instead on the global market. Uh, what that means in terms of boxing isn't clear, or at least isn't clear to me. Uh, it is probably worth noting that there are presently very few fights, even tentatively, on the design schedule so far for 2020. And then, of course, there's the other huge factor, which is that its biggest star has just sued it for $280 million. Although, and I am no legal expert, I don't really understand what just happened. Uh, a judge did sort of initially throw that first filing out and back at Canelo and his team and told them to refile it for what I think is just a technicality. Yeah. Um, but either way, you have to figure that's going to complicate things. Um, so Canelo Alvarez signed an 11-fight, $365 million contract with his own in 2019. He's fought twice under that contract. Claims he's only received half of what he's owed. Is also apparently unhappy that DAZN is bulking at the various options he and his team have presented for opponents this year. Right in the middle of all of this mess is Canelo's promoter, Golden Boy Promotions, which allegedly promised the zone that Canelo would fight Gennady Golovkin a third time when signing a deal with the company, even though that stipulation is apparently and allegedly not in any paperwork that Canelo himself has signed. Um, some of this, of course, has been an open secret for a while. I think we might have even talked about this on the podcast before. Now it's fully out in the open. It feels awfully messy, and it also feels... Well, boxing can surprise us, but this doesn't feel likely to lead to a very amicable rapprochement. Uh, this feels like something that could sort of blow up the boxing broadcast business as it stands at the moment um, and cause for some reorganization. But um, 
it's always easy for for us to get a little bit overexcited by the inside baseball stuff of the boxing world but i think this is different this does feel significant right in at least within like the parameters of who's fighting for who and and who's going to be involved in broadcasting and streaming or am i over egging this a little bit no you're you're not this is this is hugely significant here i mean i, I saw my friend and uh, former podcast partner bill detloff tweet something to the effect of boxers suing networks and promoters who cares uh that sounds like bill yeah <laughs> yeah um and i i get that i you know we'd all rather read about fights and fighters not lawsuits but sure. this is not a who cares situation to me this is this is too big too impactful to ignore it's not mikey garcia sitting out a while as he breaks free from top rank this is the biggest star in the sport possibly missing out on a large chunk of his career in his prime a major promoter possibly being in big trouble if it loses its one huge star, and a streaming service that was supposedly going to change the boxing landscape maybe being a few months away from exiting boxing in the U.S. Mm. And then there's the side story of if Canelo breaks free, where does he go? What does that bidding war look like? Um, I'd love to get Steven Espinoza's take as a guy with a law degree on this lawsuit, mm. but but I would imagine he ain't saying a word because I would imagine strategy sessions are going on to see <laughs> about Canelo becoming part of the Showtime family once the dust settles here. This is an enormous deal with enormous implications and ripples. And you know, while I'm not usually in the business of feeling empathy for a guy with tens of millions of dollars in the bank like Canelo. I do feel empathy for him here because I know he wants to fight. I know he yes. wants to fight a pretty good opponent. Uh, yes. And DAZN can't or won't pay him what they agreed to pay him. My DAZN subscription happens to end in about a week. Uh, I have some thinking to do. I don't intend to cancel. They just announced the Dorticos Bredas Cruiserweight Tournament Final for September 26th. Uh, I'm watching that. Uh, but it might be time to go month to month instead of the annual mm. plan. The biggest part of this is... How soon will we see Canelo in the ring again? Unless something suddenly shifts, 2020 is lost for him. Mm -hmm. um, I looked back to, to check uh, some, some records of some other fighters, how long they were off. Andre Ward was off about 18 months in his prime when he was working out a dispute with Dan Goosen. Mikey Garcia was off for two and a half years. If Canelo's on the Andre Ward end, that would mean he fights in the first half of 2021. Okay, no big deal. But what if it takes longer? What if he's right. somehow tied up in litigation until 2022? You know, he just turned 30. There is absolutely nothing worse for the sport of boxing right now than to miss a long stretch of time in Canelo's prime. I doubt we will. I think somehow or other this will get settled. He'll get some money and move on and fight, say, next Cinco de Mayo. But if I'm wrong, if it's longer than that, that is a dagger in the back for the sport of boxing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's really interesting because it, it's clear that DAZN has buyer's remorse, right? And 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 this isn't just us being wise after the fact. We, all of us, not just you and I, but everybody in the business marveled, well, gasped at how much DAZN was clearly overpaying, uh, not just Canelo, but basically everybody, right. throwing money at, at, at fighters that would not have gotten any, you know, uh, in any other market. And yeah, it was great the fighters were getting paid, but it was clearly not sustainable. And and what interests me is, you know, they were doing this not just to become forced their way into boxing broadcast business, but so that becoming established 
in combat sports would enable them to then go to other things. Like that. I don't think the zone has ever seen themselves in the US as a boxing broadcaster in the same way that the, just because for the first three or four years of his existence, Amazon only sold books, never meant, didn't mean that Jeff Bezos only saw himself as an online borders. <laughs> it was a means, it was always a means to, to an end. And, and if the zone in the US is giving up on some of that other stuff, uh, if I, and if I understand that correctly, that's sort of what it's doing. If it's no longer looking at boxing as a lost leader into these other sports, you know, is it what, what's its feeling about boxing generally? And my understanding is that, you know, it's now lost Bellator to CBS Sports and perhaps Big Boy CBS and perhaps Showtime. Um, you know, I mean, Bellator was doing some some stuff on the Paramount Network too. So, you know, and then the relationship with the zone isn't certain, but. I don't know. I, I I just don't know what what that means. You know, and they've obviously made some mis- mistakes. Apparently, they didn't. They expect Canelo to fight at least one quote premium opponent a year, but there's no definition of what that means. And they don't regard didn't regard Sergey Kovalev as a premium opponent, which I think right. is. Whereas apparently, um, you know, they would regard Khabib or a returning Oscar De La Hoya as a premium <laughs> opponent, which sort of suggests, you know, where their head is at. Right. So. I don't know. Look, maybe everything gets sorted out. Canelo stays with the zone. The zone continues to produce great fights. We all look stupid. Uh, they all look bright. But uh, yeah, I don't know. We're, there's there's a lot to be sorted out here, and um, I'm not quite sure where it all ends up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's an extreme long shot that this just gets amicably resolved and they continue working together. That seems like the least likely scenario. And uh, I don't know if you saw what uh, what what Oscar said with regard to uh, the sort of legal hiccup of having to refile, but he sort of proposed the idea that uh, well, while they're refiling, this gives us an extra opportunity to kind of kind of work this out and prevent it from blowing up. I, I don't think so. This this again, I don't have a legal background e- either, right. but it sure feels to me like this is just a technicality. They're refiling the suit and moving ahead with it, and it's going to take a, a fair amount of money from somebody to to wrap this thing up. Yeah. Um, in the meantime, uh, no Canelo, not much DAZN right now in terms of uh, the fights that we have to look forward to, but uh, some fights are being made and broadcast. Showtime, of course, as we have discussed, is up and running, and a few days ago, ESPN and Top Rank officially announced a slate of fights for October. We'll talk about most of them nearer the time, but there's no question about the biggest among them. October 17th, Vasily Lomachenko versus Teofimo Lopez. It's been talked about for a long time. It's now officially happening. Kieran, on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you for this? Honestly, about a 15. <laughs> um, That's look, not how I... a scale of 1 to 10 works, Kieran. <laughs> Does if I wanted to. Okay. Um, look, I'm, uh, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm super excited about this fight. Uh, I, look, I've, I've made no secret about the fact that I think Lomachenko is beyond extraordinarily good. I love Terence Crawford, love Terence Crawford. But for me, there is absolutely no debate about who is the best boxer in the world. Um, Lomachenko's talent is is otherworldly. But uh, he's small for 135. Mm -hmm. Uh, By his standards, he struggled a little bit in his fights at 135. And Teofimo Lopez is you know, while not technically capable as Lomachenko, nobody is really, uh, an outstandingly unconventional fighter. And he has immense power. Um, obviously, Lopez was never fought anybody like Lomachenko before. Nobody has. But I'm not sure that Lomachenko's fought anybody quite like Lopez before either. And, and Lopez is big for 135. I can see a situation 
where Lomachenko could embarrass Lopez completely and show that he's just not ready. I can also see a situation where Lopez knocks Lomachenko out. I love this fight. Yep, yep. The more I think about it, the more excited I get. Yep. Well, by the time it comes, then, well, maybe you'll be uh, at least up to an 11. <laughs> no, th- this one doesn't go to 11. Ah. One, 1 to 10 goes to 10. Re- remember, Kieran, I'm a math guy. <laughs> but 11. Um, <laughs> one fight that hasn't yet been signed, sealed, and delivered, but about which uh, one of the promoters involved is sounding confident, is the third fight between Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder. Uh, Bob Arum, Fury's US promoter, has stated that he's targeting December 19th, which we'd already mentioned, I think, Um, but is also stating he wants the fight to be at the Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. That's the new home of the now Las Vegas Raiders, with, he hopes, some fans in attendance. He's hopeful that social distancing measures can be achieved with a crowd of perhaps 10 to 15,000. Does that sound realistic to you, a major U.S. fight with fans in attendance before the end of 2020? I'm increasingly feeling, yes, that it's, it's... Certainly possible and bordering on even, I would say, realistic. Uh, look, with, with with COVID and how people are dealing with it, it can change at any moment. But we have developed such a better understanding of how it spreads compared to the early months of the pandemic in the mm. U.S. Now, almost everyone I know is of the belief that if we're outdoors, if we're not right next to each other, if we wear masks, if we are going to be right next to each other, we're not worried about touching surfaces. We can right. just be conscious of how we breathe in each other's direction, and we can be safe or, or safe enough to make the trade-off worth it. Uh, I had no idea that the first NFL game of the season in Kansas City on Thursday was going to have fans in attendance, uh, but I turned it on during the pregame, and wait, there, there are some fans there, and they're spread out. They're wearing masks for the most part, and this doesn't look unsafe to me. That was my mm. reaction was, you mm. know what? That kind of looks okay. We can do this to some degree, I, I think. You know, uh, it, it ain't Sturgis without masks. It ain't a Vegas pool party. You have to be smart about it. But you can do it, especially with three more months of knowledge built up by the time we get to December. You know, it's reasonably nice in Vegas, outdoors in December. That stadium has 65,000 capacity for football I'm guessing that means it could be like 75,000 for boxing. So yeah, that number, that range that Aram threw out, 10 to 15,000, I I think you can safely fit that in there and that'll get you enough of a gate to maybe make this thing worthwhile and pay the fighters more or less what they're looking for. Now, will the whole country be a war zone after November 3rd? Maybe. (laughs) It might be that leaving your house at all in December is a bad idea for a variety of reasons. Uh, But just focusing on the COVID factor, Let's see if there's a spike in cases in Kansas City in a week or two. If not, I'll be fairly confident that they can pull off something like this. Hmm. Okay, well, we shall see. Um, here's a news item. I think this is going to be a little difficult for both of us. Um, 50-year-old Chris Bird, former heavyweight titleist and one of the nicest men ever to step into a boxing ring. Um, as- announced on social media he's been posting a lot on social media that he intends to make a comeback in the middleweight division uh he looks in fantastic shape and this is basically what's behind everything he says he's in the best shape he's been in um long-term injuries and aches have been eased through a combination of a vegan diet and cbd among other things it's great to see um that he is apparently in, in shape and has sort of gotten rid of all those aches and pains he could be a real inspiration here but that doesn't mean he belongs in a boxing ring, it makes me uncomfortable to talk about because I like Chris, um, and I'm sure he won't be thrilled that we're talking about this without discussing it with him. I know that you like Chris too, and you mm. did a big article about him not long ago. 
Um, because it's my turn to write the outline this week, I'm taking advantage of that by putting you on the hot seat. Um, what are your thoughts on the notion of Chris making a comeback? Do you think he's serious about wanting to make a comeback, or is this just him feeling good about his situation? And do you think it could actually even happen? I, I don't know. It's hard to get in his head and know exactly what's going on here. You said it. This is about as sad as it gets with, with boxing comeback talk. You know, Tyson, Roy, Oscar, Sergio, none of them make me feel as profoundly sad as seeing 50-year-old Chris Bird wanting to do this. And yeah, he looks in shape for 50, but he doesn't look physically strong to me. It, right. In that Instagram video that I saw, he kind of reminds me of myself in terms of you know, his movements are cautious. His joints and bones aren't what they once were. There's like a creakiness to the way he's moving around with his shirt off there. Uh, I wrote, uh, as you said, uh, an article recently. It was a Ringside Seat Magazine, issue six, uh, came out a little less than two years ago. I spoke at length with Chris about his struggles with depression, which came as a result of a variety of physical ailments he was dealing with from boxing. He was crying on the phone, telling me mm. about how messed up he was. And smoking pot was helping a lot. He, he mentioned that. But he was still a shell of himself and in constant physical pain. Any moment that he wasn't high was excruciating. Mm. He said, quote, I'm living in hell, man. Uh, he also said, I don't know how it feels to have a good day and have no pain. So I, I'm thrilled that he must be feeling better. You know, that mm -hmm. part of this warms my heart. But boxing again is not the answer you know work out in the gym stay in shape do a little light sparring if it makes you happy yeah but don't go any further than that chris bird yeah. is as nice and as intelligent yep. a boxer as you'll ever meet i really hope he comes to his senses and realizes that there's no money in this for him uh yeah. and that someone reminds him boxing caused a lot of his physical problems yep. don't make it worse please chris yep yep exactly all right. You, you probably didn't think the podcast could get any more depressing than that, but we will uh, somehow end on an even sadder note. Uh, a couple of uh, boxing deaths to note here. Uh, British middleweight Alan Minter, who briefly held the world title by defeating Vito Antifermo in 1980 and defending the title against him in a rematch before surrendering the crown to Marvin Hagler, died last week at age 69 after a battle with cancer. And Floyd Mayweather protege and undefeated prospect Danny Gonzalez was shot and killed at a Labor Day picnic at age 22, just three fights into his pro career. Horrible. Uh, Kieran, anything to comment on? Um, first of all, yeah, that's a, the right word. Horrible. Uh, horrible news indeed about Danny Gonzalez. I didn't know anything about him at all. Right. Um, nobody should be dying for whatever reason or in whatever manner at age 22. That's that's just tremendously sad. Um, and as for Alaminta, you know, for boxing, British boxing fans of a certain generation, i.e. mine, um, Minter was, was a major presence. The, the first fight that I recall listening to on the radio late at night, um, quiet enough, loud enough that I could hear, but quiet enough that my parents didn't realize that's what I was doing, was Milner's rematch in 1980 against Antofermo. And that was really his peak moment. Um, you know, he, he, he cut Antofermo to shreds uh, in, that, uh, in that fight. And it's kind of ironic that he went on cuts because to that point, he'd lost six times in his career and every single one of them was because he'd been cut. Mm. Um, but that was his peak moment. He fought just four more times after that, going one and three, starting with the loss to Hagler, which again, was caused by cuts and by Marvin Hagler being Marvin Hagler, frankly. Um, 
and of course was marred by appalling scenes from the crowd which pelted Hagler and his people with beer bottles um, when the fight was stopped uh, Britain in the late 1970s and early 1980s was a dreadful place in many ways um, British boxing has climbed to greater heights since then but back then folks like Minter and John Conte and Jim Watt and Tony Simpson were very important figures for the sport in the country so rest in peace to him all right, that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Our thanks again to Stephen Breadman Edwards for his great guest appearance. Uh, we will be back next week with a recap of this Saturday's Showtime action. And that will be the first podcast of a busy week. We will be podcasting, I think, almost every day during the build-up to the September 26th pay-per-view double event uh, headlined by the Charlo Brothers. Until then, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs> <laughs>